Whatever happened to Jack Bauer? 24 fans, anybody? Did he ever escape from Russia? That is where we left him last year. I don't think they're going to make any more. But here we have this star of 24, the American ultimate hero, bringing justice to people by catching the bad terrorists, and yet himself suffering incredible injustice. The general worldview that's portrayed through Jack Bauer as he does his stuff is that if you want to catch the bad guys, then you need to be prepared to do some bad stuff yourself. You've got to get your hands dirty. To see that justice is served, some injustice perhaps is required. If you know 24, you'll know that in every episode of a series of 24, there's always a, they capture a certain bad guy. But unfortunately, this bad guy wants to make some deal with the government in exchange for information about where his other bad guy friends are. The typical story is that he wants immunity from prosecution. And he wants a signed letter from the president before he will spill the beans on his terrorist friends. It's obviously very frustrating. Horrible situation for the president to be in and for Jack the terrorist is usually responsible for killing thousands of people. And yet here, he wants immunity so he can effectively get away with mass murder. What do you do? Well, after much deliberation, that person usually gets immunity. Jack eventually finds the bad guy and everything ends well. Or does it? There's always a surviving victim somewhere. Someone who is a complete innocent person, they've suffered, maybe their friends have died or their family member has died, and they learn this information that this terrorist has received immunity from the president. And they become enraged and angry and demand justice, and so they go and find the person and kill them. How could they commit such murder and get away with it? That's their argument, but they have now just become a murderer. And although their one little act of murder has seen justice for this mass murderer, it means that they who were once innocent are now arrested and sent to prison. And us, the audience, are left confused about what is justice? What's right and what's wrong? Who, who is in the right here? What's fair? What isn't fair? That's that little act of murder can't be that bad, can it? Compared to the terrorist who kill thousands of people and by the time you get to the end of the series you realise that there's no one really innocent all those people who've done things wrong some of them go free but those who've tried to save the nation like Jack end up in jail or they have to fake their own death to escape capture well there's something a little bit like that feeling the question of justice going on with Habakkuk. Who are the goodies? Who are the baddies? What is right and wrong? What's fair? If you weren't here last week, we learned this shocking response that God gives to Habakkuk in response to his complaints about why is God allowing such injustice? Why is God allowing his people to go on sinning? And God says, watch out. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians to judge and to punish my people. And as you read other parts of the Bible, you see that's what happens. The Babylonians came into Jerusalem, they destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, 
took the people away to exile. And Habakkuk doesn't understand. The next verses we've just read, Habakkuk is confused by God's method. How can he tolerate the wickedness of the Babylonians? They're worse than us. And Habakkuk uses God's character against him. If you look down at verse 12, God is one who's everlasting and, and holy. He's one who's pure, who can't look upon evil. How can he allow this or even ordain it to happen? How can a holy God allow wickedness, even the death of his people who are more righteous than they, how can he allow that to happen? And so we cry out to Paul, like Jack Bauer, where is the justice for the righteous? And so Habakkuk has two questions. How can God allow the wicked to prosper? And how and where is justice for the righteous? How can God allow the wicked to prosper? Where is justice for the righteous? Habakkuk's complaint then. Well, God has used this very evil nation of Babylon to overcome and judge this lesser evil nation of Judah. <coughs> and his complaint, if you look down at verse 14, his complaint here, Habakkuk describes this relationship between Judah and Babylon and he illustrates it with this fishing analogy. Let's read that together, verse 14. You have made the people like the fish in the sea, like the sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with his hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them up in his dragnet. And so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? I remember going fishing when I was a teenager. I think it was the first time I was excited, but of course I never believed I would ever catch a fish. He was in the sea, and we were catching mackerel. And um, you put down your line over the side, and you wait. <laughs> and then suddenly it hooks and you feel the pull on the line. The adrenaline runs and you quickly wind in the reel on the, on the fishing rod and, and you try and do that quickly to get it out of the water before the fish free themselves and swim off. If you are good, you can catch up to six fish on one line. It's great. But can you imagine those fishermen who catch hundreds and thousands of fish in their big, huge nets in the sea. I did have a photograph, but I forgot to put it on the PowerPoint. But imagine, big drag nets, huge nets, pulled by boats, catching hundreds and thousands of fish. Habakkuk is seeing the fish are like the poor people of the world, helpless. The Babylonians are these nets that capture them, so they can't escape. The Babylonians succeed, and they have victory, and that just boosts their confidence and they become arrogant and, and greedy for power. It deepens their pockets as they plunder the wealth of other people. They're satisfied with good things as they take from those who are poor. They abuse the vulnerable and they take advantage of those who are afraid. And in their triumphs, well, they worship. And so Habakkuk asked this question, 
Will they keep on doing it? Will they keep on destroying nations? God, are they going to keep on doing this? Will you not step in and do something? And so we get to the beginning of chapter 2 and Habakkuk says, Okay, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. He will be on the lookout to see what God is going to do. I will, will, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I am to give to this complaint. So Habakkuk doesn't get it, doesn't understand, but he's willing to be patient to hear God out. Wasn't this frustration that Habakkuk has a little bit like Asaph? Do you remember Asaph, this man of Psalm 73? Before Christmas, we were in Malachi, and a few times we looked at this man, Asaph. A man who was godly, who tried to live a godly life, do what was right as an Israelite. But he just observed wickedness around him. People who just lived however they wanted to. People who were successful and rich and happy, but did what they want. They had no care, no thought for God. And they had no troubles, no problems. Everything was just hunky-dory. How can this happen? Asaph asked. How can those who show no interest, or even live in opposition to God, how can life just be all happy for them? I don't know if that is an experience that you have. You, do you see people who live their lives denying God, living in complete disobedience to Him, and yet they're happy and they're successful? They have no cares in the world. And yet you, in comparison, you're trying to be upright. You're trying to live a godly life. Be obedient to him. But it's a struggle. It's hard. You don't succeed. I know of somebody who always used to complain that her colleagues would have these lovely holidays abroad in nice countries. But because she gave money regularly to the church, there wasn't enough for such lovely holidays. Maybe we have friends who enjoy multiple sexual partners or even just one partner but outside of marriage. While you are fighting to remain pure, waiting for your wedding day. Or perhaps you know of colleagues who cheat and lie their way into promotion at work. Their cunning deception means they get the job and yet you're still left somewhere down the ladder. And like Asaph and like Habakkuk, how can God allow this to happen? It's not just. How can the righteous suffer? Habakkuk's problem. God's response. <clears throat> well, God speaks. That is the big thing of chapter 2. He gives a fuller answer than he did before and he gives a final answer. Look at Chapter 2, verse 2. <coughs> the Lord replies, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. So God is, is clear here that, okay, Habakkuk, you've got your issues, your questions. I have spoken. He's given an answer, he's explained his reasoning, he's prophesying revelation. And he's doing it from his eternal holy throne. Right at the end of the chapter, verse 20, 
the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. God speaks. And when God speaks, people need to listen. Because what he has to say is important. None of us were there. But I hear that when World War II came to an end, it didn't take long for the news to spread. Church bells would ring. People ran out into the streets shouting, the war is over. People cheered. The radio talked about it. and The newspaper had headlines declaring the war is over. And everyone knew that Hitler had finally was killed. And Germany had surrendered. And the war was over. A message that was clear, that had gone out, that had been taken. And that's what we get in these opening verses. Habakkuk hears from God to write down the revelation. To make it plain on a tablet. It's firm, it stands strong. It should be clear because you need to run with it and spread and tell the news. The news of this definite and final act of God. His judgment is coming. And so everybody should hear what God has to say. And Dan read out God's judgments from verses 4 to 20. We won't go through it in detail. There's a lot of stuff there. We will kind of skim through it. But let's just take a, uh, a peek again at verses 4 and 5 and 6, actually. Look at those verses. Verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest. Because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied, he gathers to himself all the nations and takes captive all the peoples. And then verse 6, Will not all of them taunt him with ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. God knows the evil behaviour of the Babylonians. And although he used their actions in judgment against his people, he didn't make them do it. They are guilty of their crimes. He knows that they're not honouring to him, that they're his enemies, that they're proud and arrogant, and that they worship foreign gods, and that they deserve judgments. And so God proceeds to declare these five woes. We've got five woes. Scan your eyes through the passage. Verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. Verse 9. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. It's like the wealthy banker who convinces you to take a mortgage, a risky mortgage with high interest. Makes him big bucks, but leaves you in big debt. Or just your average Joe walking down the street puts a few copper coins in a charity box as he makes his way to pay in a substantial bit of money into his ISA. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Or verse 15. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so he can gaze on their naked bodies. The person who abuses their position and abuses their influence to get their own way. 
or the one who, who flirts with the opposite sex and takes advantage of them. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to wood. Woe to him who says to wood. Come to life, or to life the stone. Wake up. Can it give it guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Like the person who bows down to a statue. Or a person who just seeks purpose and meaning of life in material things. All stuff that has no regard for God. Living for self. Living for self at the expense of other people. Here, it's in big, drastic ways, isn't it? But yet, we can apply it down to ourselves in little ways that we can do this. And those five words, uh, like the behaviour described in that fishing analogy we saw at the end of chapter 1. And God's judgment is simply this. They will reap what they sow. They will get what they deserve. My justice. For example, that first woe. Verse 6. Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. And then verse 7, he said, Will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey. <laughs> so it seems that those nations who have, they've abused will one day rise up and abuse them. And we kind of see that happen throughout biblical history particularly. All nations and empires that rise up and rulers have come to dominate the world. Eventually you see their sin deepen, their evil deepen, their rejection of God despite his commands and his warnings. And that empire falls. It happened to the Egyptians, the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Israelites. It's happening to Babylon, or will happen to Babylon, and then Persia, and then Greece, then Rome, etc., etc. God warned them, he gave them a chance, I am God, you must worship me. If you don't repent, then you will be judged. He said that to non-Israelite nations as well. But what about nations or empires nearer our own time? What of the British Empire? That empire that spanned the whole world. That gave lip service to God, recognised him. And when it spread, God was pleased to send the gospel with it. But a nation that is turning from him and rejecting him. An empire that's dying. Is that God's judgment? Think of Nebuchadnezzar, book of Daniel. This hadn't happened at the point of Habakkuk. But do you remember Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, Daniel chapter 2, when he dreams of this big statue made of different materials. And each part of that statue represented different empires that were to come, beginning with Babylon, and then Persia, Greece, and Rome. And you remember in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, this small rock, fell and crushed the statue and it smashed it to smithereens and all the bits just flew away in the wind. 
But then from that small rock grew this huge giant mountain that filled the whole earth. And Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that the interpretation is that this mountain is the kingdom of God. And that the kingdom of God would rise up to dominate the whole earth forever and ever. That all earthly kingdoms would come to an end, but God's kingdom would go on always. So God's judgment against Babylon and Habakkuk 2 is not just for them, but it's for all kingdoms. All those who reject God and rise up in rebellion against him. But then also all those within those kingdoms, the people themselves, including you and me. All that will remain is the glory of the Lord. See verse 14. If there's all your stuff, all your building, all your conquering will come to an end. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is what God will do. God has fulfilled his promises so far in history. We know that Jesus Christ has fulfilled so many and we can trust him and we can know that one day he will return and he will fulfill his judgment. The process of kingdom rising and kingdoms falling will go on through history, but one day he will come to an end and only one kingdom will last. And this is what comforted Asaph. He saw the end of those who were wicked. And all those who live for self, all those who accumulate possessions, who store money in the bank, who live for pleasure, it's all swept away, it's all blown away in the wind. All that's left is God's kingdom. And what is that kingdom like? It's different. A kingdom not built by power and, and might, not built on abuse and enslavement of the weak. A kingdom not built on exploitation or extortion or immorality or any kind of evil. But a kingdom that's built on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A kingdom built on his blood on the cross. Habakkuk asked, why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Where is justice for the righteous? Have you been asking the question as you've been going through, who are the righteous? If it's only the righteous who live, chapter 2 verse 4, who are they? Is it you? Is it me? See, the problem with Judah and the problem Habakkuk had was that he was playing the comparison game. Yes, Judah were wicked. He saw that. He, he wanted God to do something about it. Well, but, but hold on. They are not as wicked as the Babylonians. And so Judah had sinned and God judged them, but yet he used this more evil nation. How can that be just? There's a problem thinking ourselves more righteous than others when we don't compare ourselves with the righteous, holy, perfect God. There's no way that when we compare our righteousness with him that we'd ever survive his judgments. 
Our good works are like filthy rags, Isaiah says. And so like those who did wrong in 24, even Jack Bauer, it didn't matter if they'd killed just one person or if they'd killed thousands of people, the law required that they would be just judged. And so therefore, the question remains, how can anyone survive? If no one is righteous, how can we live? Well, Paul asked this question himself in Romans, the beginning of Romans. Verses, chapters 1 and 2, he, he evaluates the position of both Jew and non-Jew before God, and the, the conclusion is that there is no one righteous. Not one. Did you notice that little verse, a little ray of light in the darkness of this chapter? Look down at verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness to God. The only righteous person who has ever lived, you know, is Jesus Christ. We were called to be faithful to God, to trust in his, in his promises, to trust in his covenants. But yet for every other person, whenever we try to be faithful to God, we failed and always will fail. Except him. He kept God's covenant perfectly. He never sinned. He is the righteous person in whom we must have faith. He is the righteous person who stood in our place. Upon that cross, he faced God's judgment for us on our behalf. On the cross, he, he died. God judged the sin of the world upon Jesus. Jesus who became sin for us. And he received what was just. The just, just penalty for sin. Death. The death for him, but that in him, life. Life for all those who would believe. There was a man who lived as a monk and he tried his hardest to keep God's commands, to do his religious duties because he had to please God. But he lived with incredible guilt and condemnation. I can never live the kind of life that God wants me to do. And he writes later, he said, I couldn't believe that God was placated by my efforts to satisfy his demands. I don't love a God like that. I hate the righteous God who punishes sinners. And I am secretly angry with this God. Yet for him one day everything changed. And he says, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words of the gospel. And he was reading Romans. And he read Romans 1. The righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. The righteous shall live by faith. And he says, therefore I began to understand the righteousness of God is a righteous life by a gift of God through my faith. And this man was Martin Luther. 
one of the great leaders of the Reformation. And as he read Romans chapter 1, he saw Paul quote Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. The righteous person will live by his faithfulness to God. And he understood. He understood that God didn't demand a righteousness from him in his own efforts. That would always fail. But the righteousness was freely supplied and given through Jesus Christ. Habakkuk 2 verse 4 changed his life and it will change anyone's life. He was willing to humble themselves, to trust in Christ. To not be the enemy that's puffed up and whose desires are not for God, but one who comes to him humbly in faith. This judgment that God pronounces, it speaks of the end. They will not prove false, God says. The day will come. But the righteous person of Jesus Christ brings hope to all those who put faith in him. Life. Life for Habakkuk and life for you in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, when we read a chapter like this, a chapter that speaks of judgment, sombering, and we see that really it's not just those who are really, really wicked who deserve such judgment, that actually it's all of us, because none of us are righteous. None of us are able to stand before you, a holy God. And in one sense, as Christians, you've received your grace, you've received righteousness from Christ, from faith in him. We do agree with your judgment. We know that it should happen. We pray that it will happen. But we also thank you that there's life in Christ. And we long for many to come and receive that righteousness. Amen.